afternoon and welcome to readying your organization for the impending EPCS deadline, a health system CIO Media Inc. production sponsored by Improvada. Just a little housekeeping before we get started. My name is Anthony Guerra, and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Health System CIO, and I will be your moderator today. We have some interactive features we're going to be using today. We'll have a, a quick audience poll later in the event that we hope you participate in. Um, we welcome your questions and comments uh, at any time during the event, and we'll, we'll pose the questions later in the program, but send them in as they occur to you. Certainly think this is a topic that is well-suited to questions. Uh, we've got some experts here to help you. And you can download the deck by using the URL on your screen. It's been sent out in the chat box, and it's on the bottom. Uh, well, actually, it's been sent out in the chat box, so there's your chance to get it. Uh, so, so you see how we're going to spend our time today. First, we're going to have our main panel discussion. Um, we're going to feature Dr. Philip Cool, VP and Chief Medical Officer with Augusta University Health System. Uh, Dan Borgasano, VP of Product Marketing with Improvada. And we should be joined shortly, hopefully, by Robin Lang, VP and CIO at Caromont Health. Uh, Robin's just running a little bit late, but she should be here soon. So let's jump right in. Uh, Dr. Cool, you want to give us um, an overview of your organization and your role? Sure. So I am the Vice President and Chief Medical Officer for the Augusta University Health System. It is a um, medium-sized but academic medical center. We're actually um, one of the, uh, we're currently the ninth largest medical school uh, in the country have a, a fairly large residency program with approximately 500 uh, residency or residents uh, across just about all of the specialties that exist. Um, <clears throat> I've been undergoing a bit of transformation, uh, as I'm sure everyone has, uh, but a very rapidly growing organization, uh, acquiring new facilities, new doctor's offices, um, uh, ambulatory surgery centers, et cetera. We also have a um, long-term acute care um, hospital and a, an inpatient rehab facility that's located um, actually on the other side of the state. But um, uh, so a bit of a complex uh, academic medical center um, that is a relatively or a very large medical school kind of on the backbone of a medium-sized academic medical center uh, located in the home of a well-known uh, international golf tournament that I'm not allowed to say the name of that will begin. Um, let's just say the world comes to town uh, in, in about a month, a month and a half. Very good. Thank you. Dan? Sure. So good afternoon, everyone. Dan Borgasano, Vice President of Product Marketing at Improvada. Uh, we are a digital identity company based here uh, in Boston, Massachusetts, but really presence globally. Uh, we're focused on healthcare, of course, and we deliver identity, uh, authentication, and access management solutions that are really designed to help you meet your workflow, security, and compliance challenges across your increasingly complex networks. So give you the ability to allow your users, all of your users, not just your clinical staff, uh, get access to all the information and applications they need, whether they be cloud or on-prem or mobile applications um, from any location and any device uh, for which they need it. 
again, really optimized for healthcare. So when we talk about devices, we often talk about medical devices as well as shared mobile devices. Um, and really from an application perspective, helping you manage that transition to the cloud uh, while also making sure that you um, give access to your users to, to your on-prem um, uh, applications as well. Um, and of course, for the purposes of this discussion, because we really optimize for healthcare, we have a robust uh, electronic prescribing for controlled substances, or EPCS, solution, um, which we'll talk about in more detail. All right. Excellent. Very good. Um, I'd like to set the stage. Dan, I, I want to go to you on this question. Uh, can you give us an overview of the regulatory landscape at the state and federal level, as well as the high-level overview of the EPCS requirements? Uh, I'm imagining you live, eat, and breathe, and know more about this stuff than probably many folks on the planet. So go ahead. Perhaps, perhaps. I've read the, uh, the DEA uh, internal final rule on EPCS uh, a number of times cover to cover. So I'm a real hoot at parties, for sure. Um, so, yeah, so when we talk about EPCS, electronic prescriptions for controlled substances, it is a highly regulated workflow. And the DEA back in 2010 established a lengthy set of unique and specific requirements that said if you are going to move to the electronic prescribing of controlled substances, you have to meet all of these requirements that are very different um, and much more stringent than the requirements for uh, electronic prescribing for, for non-controlled substances. And we'll talk about why that is in, in just a moment. Um, the, the primary reason that the uh, DEA allowed for the electronic prescribing for controlled substances was to really address the mounting opioid epidemic that um, has really become a public health crisis in this country. And one of the ways from a technology perspective that you can uh, potentially address opioid and prescription drug abuse is by taking the paper prescription out of the hands uh, of the patient, thereby reducing the risk of fraud, diversion, and doctor shopping. However, because we're talking about controlled substances, and in particular opioids, that do have a high risk of dependency and abuse, when the DEA established its rules around electronic prescribing, it said we need to make sure that we can reduce the risk of fraud in an electronic sense. So therefore, there are a number of different uh, requirements that the, the DEA has, and I'll go through those um, now. So, you know, the DEA says, for example, that you need to conduct identity proofing for all of your providers before you can enable them for EPCS. And that means you need to validate their identity. They are who they say they are. They're authorized to pre prescribe controlled substances. The DEA number and their license to practice medicine are all in good standing before you can enable them for EPCS. And that's true even if they're already prescribing controlled substances on paper today. You need to validate their identity. Next, um, one of the most commonly known uh, aspects of EPCS is a two-factor authentication when signing the order. So before the provider can sign an order, send it off to the pharmacy, um, they need to perform two-factor authentication, a password and a token, a fingerprint biometric and a token, some combination of two factors. Now, in order to bind the identity of those providers with the two-factor authentication credential that they'll use, you have to enroll those modalities in a compliant way. So there's identity proofing, validate the identity of the providers, but then there's a credential enrollment step where again, you'll actually bind the two-factor authentication credential to their identity. Now when the providers use two-factor, 
they have to make sure that they are compliant with DEA requirements. So the DEA looks to FIPS and NIST and other government standards as the, um, the standard by which two-factor authentication can be used for EPCS. And so there are, that means there are a limited number of options that your providers have. Now, in addition to this, a separate stream from that provider identity proofing and enrollment is what the DEA refers to as logical access control. And this is a multi-step process whereby your providers will be given permission in your application, your EHR, to actually use the EPCS workflow. But as part of that, it's a two-step process, as I said. One step is to have a set of individuals actually configure the workflow. The second step is to have other set of individuals approve those permissions. That's logical access approval. And that whole workflow and those sets of individuals need to be separate from those conducting the identity proofing. Once you've completed all that, you can then give your providers the ability to do EPCS, again, using two-factor for each transaction. And as part of the entire process, all the steps I just talked about, as well as a number of different things related to the prescription um, itself, transaction itself, must be monitored and reported on um, from, uh, from an auditing perspective. Now, that's sort of at a very high level. There's a lot of more specific information, and we can go through that and certainly answer any questions that you might have. But the, the idea from the DEA perspective is to establish what they refer to as non-repudiation with absolute certainty, to know that throughout this entire process, if there was an instance of diversion, you could tra trace back to, with absolute certainty, using audit records, that it was, in fact, the specific provider who wrote a specific prescription for this patient for this medication using this approved process. We often refer to it as a secure, auditable chain of trust. But all of these requirements need to be met in order for you to enable EPCS. And why that's becoming sort of increasingly important is that many states are starting to mandate the use of electronic prescribing as a means to combat the opioid epidemic. So today, there are 10 states that have laws in effect that require electronic prescribing. Some of them require it for all medications. Many specify controlled substances, but 10 different states, and they've taken effect um, over the course of the last several years. And we can certainly provide you know, a list of those states in the specific timeline as, as a follow-up. But there are, in addition to the 10 that are effective today, there are 17 additional states that have passed laws that will take effect in the coming years. So in total, 27 states will be requiring electronic prescribing for controlled substances, which means if you're in one of those states to comply with those laws, you must meet all of those DEA requirements that I just outlined. Now, from a federal perspective, you know, in addition to those state laws, there was a bill passed in October of 2018, the Support for Patients and Community Act. Now, this was sweeping federal legislation that had a number of initiatives designed to address opioid abuse, one of which was an electronic prescribing requirement for all controlled substances prescribed through the Medicare Part D program. So starting in January of 2021, any controlled substance that is prescribed through Medicare Part D must be done electronically. So if, you, if your organization or your providers or your patients participate in Part D, of which there's some 50 million patients nationwide that do, you need to move to electronic prescribing by 2021 if you're going to be prescribing controlled substances. And again, that requires you to meet all of those DEA uh, requirements for EPCS. 
So I know that was a lot of information, but <laughs> it is to say that EPCS is becoming an inevitability from a state and federal regulatory perspective. And in order to comply with those laws, you must meet all of those unique and specific DEA requirements for EPCS. Well, that is a, a great overview, and I'm sure there's, there's going to be lots to dig into there, uh, or as we say these days, to unpack. I believe that's the popular term. Uh, Robin has joined us. So, um, Robin, you thanks for coming. Thanks for joining. Can you give us an overview of your organization and role? Yes, absolutely. So I'm Chief Information Officer at Caremont Health. I have responsibility for our physician informaticist program and then for all the informatics programs surrounding our EHR and any of our clinical information systems across the organization. Okay, excellent. All right, next question. <clears throat> Why did you decide to move forward with EPCS? What challenges were you having with paper, and what was the impact, uh, Dr. Cool? Yeah, so we um, we had a couple of problems that we were hoping to solve with EPCS. Uh, the first was a patient convenience uh, issue, and uh, that one was actually very near and dear to my heart. We um, we uh, I have a daughter who has attention deficit disorder and has to get prescriptions for um, for her uh, um, attention deficit disorder and. It is a controlled substance, and actually the pediatricians and the pediatric uh, psychiatrists are actually one of, uh, one of our heavier users, but that uh, prescription, of course, being a controlled, had to be picked up in person, um, and the inconvenience around requesting a refill prescription, that uh, having to be printed out put in an envelope, that envelope being stored at the office, then someone picking that up uh, and having to physically go down and pick up a prescription. To be honest with you, um, every time I had to do it uh, on my daughter's behalf, I would just scratch my head and go, this is crazy. There has to be a better way than this. So um, some of the refills, particularly on the controls, um, and, and of course, not just the opioids, um, it was a... a a big patient dissatisfaction. And in our case, where we have patients uh, as an academic medical center where our patients may be hours away, um, you either have to shift the care back to the primary care physician who is sometimes uncomfortable with that, or the patient literally uh, has to wait for a prescription to be mailed or something like that. So uh, we had patient convenience issues that we were hoping to solve. We had um, a paper prescription diversion problem. So we had reams of controlled substance, special, you know, bonded, uh, numbered paper go missing from our from our warehouse, um, and we saw those prescriptions to start show up uh, at some of our commercial pharmacies, and of course, in a computerized error, the biggest disadvantage of a computerized error is if you got the right looking paper and you can scribble something on a line. Uh, it it's becomes easier in some ways to forge a prescription and make it look authentic. You steal the logo off the website, you you know you get one legitimate prescription and you and you mimic that. And so we mm -hmm. had the theft of um, some prescription paper uh, that caused us a lot of concern. We started seeing some of those showing up um, as fraudulent prescriptions in the uh, in the retail setting. And then we also had uh, prescription fraud. 
um, where we had um, prescriptions that were being uh, written inappropriately um, by non-physicians, uh, where we they weren't even stealing the paper; they were uh, they were altering prescriptions, things like that. And again, taking mm-hmm. a legitimate prescription and altering that, and taking it to the pharmacy. So that was one of our struggles and one of the difficulties that uh, that we were looking to solve with EPCS. Um, then there was the paper and maintenance problem. So um, we had to, of course, secure our paper, and we didn't recognize the weakness that we had in our storage of the paper in the warehouse before it came to the hospital. We secured it once we got it in the hospital. We weren't we weren't paying attention to the warehouse. But in addition to the logistics around the specialized paper, which is required under Georgia law, um, maintaining the printers where those uh, prescriptions were being printed added additional cost and complexity. So now we've got not just um, you know average printers that we're maintaining, it's gotta be multiple drawers. And then there's the constant hassle of making sure the prescription paper is in the right drawer and that somebody doesn't load it right. Um, And we were actually having a a fair amount of effort just maintaining those systems that, again, we kept asking, there's got to be a better way of doing this. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then while we were considering this and in the process of of, uh, looking seriously into implementing EPCS, the first draft bill requiring EPCS in Georgia was introduced into the legislature. And um, I laughed because I felt like um, we had always been playing catch up with IT and we're always playing catch up to regulations. And I laughed because I said, gosh, for once we're finally ahead of a regulation and we're not having to do it uh, because the regulation's in place and now I'm meeting a deadline. Um, this is the way things are going, and uh, luckily we can get ahead of it and um, and implement this on a reasonable timeline because of the benefits associated with it, not because the regulations are going to make us do it. Very good, Robin. North Carolina, on July 2017, the STOP Act was introduced and passed into legislation, and it was a phase-in uh, approach so that the first phase led to the advanced care practitioner consulting with the physician upon initial subscription and then uh, every 90 days. And then that advanced into September of that year of looking at the amount orderable in a five and seven day supply and the documentation of both of those things and the um, patient's record. Not unlike uh, Dr. Cole, we had our convenience issues, safety issues, And then the bill was going to advance effective January 2020 for e-prescription for all controlled substances becoming mandatory under the law and a required review of the state database along with um, a 90-day review being documented. So we started to look at the fact that we um, we had a voluntary database in the state that it was suggested that it was reviewed when patients came in. We probably had better compliance and adherence to that in areas like pain management, but certainly not in the normal workflow in most of our primary care areas or in the ED, et cetera. So we knew we had to meet the requirements under the law, but do it in the way that we best addressed workflow 
for the physicians and the AVPs who were going to be using this a system to increase their efficiency so that this did not become just one more burden within the EMR for them. You know, uh, we count clicks, so there has to be a good return on click investment for any of the work that we do. But we had to also come about this toward the safest, most effective care to the patients that we were going to be serving. So under the state regulation, we knew was coming. We knew we needed time to prepare. We had a pretty good e-prescribing uh, population of providers in just regular medication. Uh, controlled substances were not yet allowed. So a large majority of our physician staff was excited to see the ability and capability of uh, controlled substances fall into uh, now the workflow that was available to them. They were ready to get away from paper because there is huge safety risks. You know, it's been over it's been over a decade. It's probably been 15 years ago that the book Paper Kills comes out. And one of the targeted topics in that book was the use of paper prescriptions and oversupplying or undersupplying or misuse, lost, um, forged, you know, all of the worries and concerns that we have that over 15 years culminated into what we now know as a crisis. So using the electronic EMR to capture all the regulatory requirements to ease the burden of the work um, that was now upon the physicians and the APPs and deliver safe, high-quality care for patients that address their you know, need for the prescription, the convenience of the refill or the true valuation of need and appropriate use up front. It was something that we were we were signed up for and ready to go in twenty seventeen. It took us until twenty nineteen to get it completely underway and to have the technology at our hands that would allow us to meet those objectives for efficient and effective care. Very good, Robin. I want to uh, stick with you. Um, you want to talk a little bit more about what you're doing in your health system to comply with the regulations and maybe uh, touch on the most challenging aspects, how you're handling them? Yes, absolutely. So um, I will say that one of the most challenging areas for us has certainly been in our emergency department. Those physicians do an amazing job with e-prescribing of everyday medications, normal business hours, where we run into the biggest challenge is for patients who come in after business hours, and we only have two local 24-hour pharmacies. Um, you know, we have to discuss with the patient, are you willing to wait until tomorrow to pick this up? Do we offer uh, some interim dose before the patient's discharged? Then how long do we have to keep them in the bed and observe them before we're, they're allowed to leave? So those were workflow um, decisions that had to be made very early on and policies written around what it looked like if a patient went home with an e-prescription to um, a pharmacy that didn't open for several hours, but they came in needing treatment for pain. How was that addressed? And what would the policy for follow-up be to that? Um, it's amazing, though, just the small geographic area that we serve, it's an enormously inconvenient drive to have only one or two pharmacies who meet the demand after normal business hours. So after 9 p.m., not being able to get a prescription is a, an enormous constraint. So we have some pop-up, that's a terrible term, but that's the way we look at it, pop-up services to our uh, emergency room patients who may need to take 
uh, medications home with them to hold them until the morning. We also found by having the convenience of the EMR collect preferred pharmacy with having folks using, um, you know, their benefits plan, sending out to mail order pharmacies, we were not religiously checking the pharmacy with the patient, confirming. So we would find that not just with um, control substances, but even with antibiotics, there was that slip where we prescribed to the mail order. So then it was going to be three or five days before the patient got the medication. So we quickly Mm -hmm. caught on to that flawed workflow. Um, I think support to the physicians. We have an informaticist team, which provides concierge service to physicians at the elbow, helping them navigate this new workflow, um, not having to run around and chase physicians down to get signatures on paper printed prescriptions has just changed our, our lives for physicians and nursing for our discharge patients. Our challenges have been with um, adoption if you run into a bump with your technology. So making sure that we gave them the absolute seamless approach so that they could, right within the EMR, access the database, document the review of the database, it prescribed to the preferred pharmacy, making it easy to collect and and present the preferred pharmacy to the physician, and then having the Bluetooth capability so a device never has to come out of a pocket, a fingerprint reader doesn't fail unless you just absolutely want that um, fingerprint reader to be your only source of input. That integration and attention to detail has helped us address most of the constraints that we were facing as we started to roll out. Dr. Cool, you want to take a shot at the question, please? Sure. So like Robin, our biggest challenge is in the emergency department, the preferred pharmacy phenomenon. Um, Even though we created a fairly tight workflow um, where people were asked at registration what their preferred pharmacy was, um, it it actually surprised me, and I don't know if it's reflective of that patient population, but it surprised me the number of times that they would answer what their preferred pharmacy was, but then once the prescription was sent, the preferred pharmacy changed. Um, <laughs> so that creates uh, some challenges, particularly around controls, and depending on your electronic prescription system, you can end up with duplicate pharmacies. So particularly for a control, that's problematic um, because in our system, a cancellation of that prescription does not actually cancel it at the pharmacy once it's authenticated. So that is probably one of our biggest challenges is that preferred pharmacy, we've tried scripting, um, you know, trying to help patients understand that that's gonna be the place that they pick up their prescription. So that's a, that's a barrier uh, as well as the pharmacy hour shrinkage uh, issues that were described by Rob and that uh, create some problems after hours because if I go ahead and send that prescription to that pharmacy um, and it's closed, now now I've got uh, two problems to deal with. I've got potentially a duplicate and then I've got something out there. You know, if, if I end up having to revert to a paper that they can carry to a different pharmacy, uh, I, I create two different problems. So. Um, that's probably one of our bigger challenges uh, around the emergency department. 
Some of the other challenges that we uh, had, we surveyed pharmacies and, and we made sure that all of our pharmacies were, were ready to receive prescriptions. Uh, we were so proud of the work that we had done. Um, and then when we went live, we, uh, our intent was to try to take the paper away. Um, and um, what we very quickly discovered was that none of the federal facilities um, had the ability to receive the EPCS and they had been left off our list for assessment. Um, we figured if we were using federal standards that the VA and the, the Army hospital in town would be using those standards and uh, we kind of missed them in our assessment. And so that created a little bit of a, a hiccup in our initial uh, implementation. Um, we still have uh, one of those facilities is still not capable of uh, receiving an electronic prescription and so that um, has provided a bit of a challenge because we have a large military population in the area. Um, one of the other challenges that we had that I underestimated the impact of is cell phone upgrades and changes. So the, when people upgrade their cell phone, you've got to do a new token. Uh, and when you do that new token, uh, the, the workload for the maintenance of that, uh, what's even more deceiving for the provider is that it appears to move over and they expect it to do, for it to function like it does for everything else. You know, you just, you essentially tell your, your iPhone, okay, so you were here, I backed it up to the cloud, I downloaded it onto my new phone here and everything's there and it should all work. And of course, that the device security appropriately so with, um, with EPCS doesn't allow that. And so it, it causes, um, a bit of confusion about the ability to prescribe electronically uh, and, and authenticate it uh, using the app on the phone. So um, that one is not one to be uh, under uh, underestimated in your uh, in your planning <laughs> process um, and and remains. We've overcome it now. We've got a pretty smooth process for fixing that, which involves someone going out, verifying who the person is again, and then uh, reinstalling the um, the token. Dan, uh, your thoughts on, on what you've heard identified as the main challenges? Yeah, sure. So that is, um, you know, a couple of uh, uh, challenges that I have heard um, in the past. And, you know, for both Robin and, and Dr. Cool, um, you know, who have been um, live with EPCS for some time now, they're really talking about kind of the optimization and scale and the ongoing management um, of, of their EPCS projects. And I'll kind of address those specific issues in just a sec. But, you know, certainly we know that other folks are at varying stages of their EPCS project. Um, and there are a lot of considerations um, that go into sort of the initial implementation as well. And I believe, you know, we'll cover those. But on these specific opt optimization kind of topics, um, the pharmacy, preferred pharmacy, is one that I've heard quite a bit. Um, and hopefully there's work there that can be done kind of on the EMR side to, to help uh, streamline that a little bit. Um, on the re-enrollment of, uh, of the phone, in, in Dr. Cool's case, um, that is also a common one. And really, you know, what, what's happening there is um, many of um, organizations are using as one of the factors of authentication is, you know, the uh, um, uh, smartphone-based app, a token app, right, that can be used as one of the factors of authentication, the something you have. Um, and, you know, that can be used in a number of different ways. But um, essentially what's, what happens is, when a provider gets a new phone, 
is essentially like them getting a new token, and that needs to be bound to their identity for the purposes of EPCS. So as I walked through, you know, one of the requirements is before I can let you use two-factor authentication for EPCS, I need to verify your identity, and then I need to enroll that token or that method of authentication bound to your identity in an auditable way. Well, that applies both for the initial rollout as well as uh, subsequent authentication methods such as a new phone. So the, the, um, the, the DEA treats uh, you know, new, getting a new authentication method almost as if you were a new provider coming in and needing to verify your identity. Okay, you are who you say you are. You can now use this new authentication method. Um, Improvada is working on ways to streamline that particular challenge because it is a fairly common one. Um, one, of the, one of the requirements uh, or one of the pieces of the requirement that I may have skipped over is that that identity proofing, the check of the ID before you can allow a provider to do EPCS, must be done in person, and it requires a, a check of a government-issued ID. And there, therein lies the challenge, because it means they need to find someone who's authorized to do that identity proofing and get them enrolled with that new phone. So Improvada is working on alternatives that will actually allow for self-enrollment of a new phone in a DEA-compliant way. Um, so, you know, that's all I'll say about that for now, but it is absolutely a, a challenge that we are uh, looking at going forward. And actually, go ahead. if I can add on to that. So um, I, I don't mean to sound all negative about those challenges. Um, overall, they're, they're challenges that are easily dealt with. Um, the, the pharmacy identity issue is not just for EPCS. Um, we have that problem for all electronic prescriptions, um, and uh, and certainly it, it is more of an EMR issue than it is an EPCS issue. Um, in terms of the um, the cell phone upgrade and changes, though, we encounter that with other uh, applications as well. So I, I think every time a provider um, changes their cell phones, there's a few things that we have to deal with within that system that um, that we can't really do anything with. Okay, uh, very good. All right, let's go to our next question. Um, Dr. Kuhl, I want to stick with you. Can you summarize which departments are involved in the EPCS process and their roles? So it's interesting. We've got you, uh, Chief Medical Officer, on the line. We've got Robin, uh, uh, CIO. So tell me a little bit about working together with, with other C-suites and other departments. Sure. So uh, obviously, it requires a very close partnership between um, a, a, a physician leader as well as uh, with IT. Our CMIO was heavily involved. Certainly, I as the CMO was heavily involved. Um, our um, medical staff office was uh, heavily involved as well as our GME office because they were the first layer of authentication. Um, then we had a working group that was a broad representation of uh, various departments and leaders within those departments. And we did that based on um, controlled substance, number of controlled substance prescriptions. So we ran a report basically looking at who was prescribing controlled substances um, and then basically made sure we included representation from the larger departments and then looked at that from a representation of um, the um, making sure that we also included the smaller unique cases. For example, 
um, you know, pediatrics, as I was referring to earlier, um, and, and um, maybe those controlled substances. And then absolutely, the emergency department is a hotbed for this. Um, and um, and you, you, I think you've, it is a unique workflow, it's unique challenges, and you have to make sure that you include those as well. Very good. Robin, you want to talk a little bit about that, the departments that yes. need to be involved? Yes, and exact, exactly the same. We had similar um, multidisciplinary departments come together. I think one area that wasn't mentioned but likely will just ring a bell uh, with Dr. Cole is that we also had quality and compliance at the table, and we brought forward our nurses. Because we function under the HRO um, premise, we believe that the frontline staff have to be involved in any of these really large interdisciplinary committees. And let's face it, we have a concierge service with our informaticists, but there's just a few of them, and there's a whole lot of providers and, and APPs out there that support um, the patient care. But our nurses also support physicians when they're at the computer, at the elbow, going, hey, get over here. How does the fingerprint reader work? And if they're not familiar with that workflow, then it frustrates everybody that the nurse doesn't know how to help the physician, the physician doesn't know how to complete the work. So we enrolled our clinical champions to also be the folks out on the floor deployed, you know, across multiple shifts to assist our physicians. And they were terrific in helping us understand when there were barriers or, you know, not as a tattletale kind of position, but if someone was really struggling that wasn't reaching out, that we could proactively assist them in helping Often we find that it just has to do with a simple build change or the way the prescription is functioning and they want one, one little difference. One ex excellent example of this committee work was we border South Carolina and it's extremely inconvenient when states don't align their rules and regulations and laws, you know. And so we had implemented this project perfectly and we're so proud of the hard work we did and all the involvement, the workflow design, and then found out in South Carolina the APP could not be the prescriber on the prescription uh, that printed to the pharmacy without the supervising physician's name on the prescription. So we were stuck, dead in the water. Any patient coming into our pain clinics, our ORs, our ED, who were going to go home just 10 12 miles from our hospital had to have a completely different workflow to address their uh, controlled control substances. So I think that, that that was a big gotcha that was not anticipated, even though we had all this level of involvement from the CMIO, CEO, medical staff, chief medical officer, all the way down, it caught us off guard when we went live. Very good. Thank you, Robin. All right. I want to launch our poll real quick, just get a, a feeling of the audience here. <coughs> Excuse me. My organization is on track to be ready for EPCS, and currently proposed requirements will have a positive impact on patient care. So why don't you go ahead and take a moment and answer that, and then we will address the results. Uh, Dan, I want to combine two questions into one here. I want to get your thoughts on the departments involved or th that should be involved, and your experience dealing with customers, and then any other thoughts you have on what people are coming to Improvata for in this area. So we all, you know, we have a product and a service we sell. Uh, all companies do. 
Um, sometimes that's perfectly in line with what people need. Sometimes it's got to be shifted a little to the left or the right. So what are people, when you meet with potential customers and customers, what are you hearing? Sure. So great question. So I think, you know, one of the, um, one of the consistent themes that we hear is help understanding the complexity of the DEA requirements around ECCS from a technology and a process perspective. So there is a lot more detail behind all of the different requirements that I talked about. And you know, there's plenty of content and things that we can share after this for those that are interested. But there are um, options for identity proofing, for example, that you have. And the decisions that you make around how you will conduct identity proofing will then dictate some of the other pieces of, of the, the workflow. And related to the question to departments, you can hear from, from our other panelists and what I see more broadly is not only does the decisions around um, implementing EPCS involve a large group and many different departments across the organization, but so too does the ongoing management. And so some of those decisions that you make based on those regulations and your understanding of those regulations, um, and really, you, in many ways, your interpretation of those regulations um, will impact, again, a lot of these different um, technology processes and sort of ongoing management uh, decisions. So one of the primary things that um, new as well as existing customers continue to come back to Improvado with is help understanding those regulations. Um, we've developed through you know, years of, of having not only our Confirm ID product, but really working with hundreds of organizations to help them succeed with EPCS, real detailed understanding of everything that goes into a successful EPCS project. Um, uh, that, that's sort of why they generally come to Improvada. The other piece, though, is the completeness of the technology. So, you know, one of the most common uh, things that people are familiar with with EPCS, like I mentioned, is this two-factor authentication requirement. And so when you think of needing to enter a password plus then a token, that's a fairly commoditized technology and workflow in that there are literally hundreds of different options that could potentially give you that second factor. However, they're not all necessarily going to work for EPCS, given all of the additional um, processes and pieces that you have um, in place. Um, sort of a generic horizontal token uh, might satisfy that one small piece, but then you're sort of left trying to figure out how to manage the enrollment, the uh, logical access, what are you going to do about all the reporting requirements. And so, you know, the other reason they come to Improvada is that our product is more of that complete, comprehensive um, EPCS solution to help you meet all of those uh, different requirements. Um, and then the third final piece I'll say, which is something that Robin alluded to earlier, is workflow. So we know that EPCS could potentially be a, a large, significant change for your providers, even if at the end of the day they see the value in moving to electronic prescribing. The actual change could be something that you need to overcome. In particular, the two-factor authentication requirement. Because now, every time I prescribe a controlled substance, I'm asked for two factors of authentication. And you can imagine that in certain workflows, pain clinics, for example, the ED, that could potentially create a barrier to care. So we've really tried to design workflows and authentication options that will make that as seamless and easy as possible for your providers. And that's really the third reason that, that you know, co companies are coming to us is to really optimize that workflow. You know, we have uh, um, biometric uh, options. We have phone-based token options, um, including one that allows, uh, any, excuse me, uses Bluetooth to wirelessly connect 
wirelessly authenticate the provider. It uses Bluetooth to read the token on their phone without them having to do anything, interact with the phone or the computer, which is a real time saver and a real clinician uh, satisfier. So that sort of summarizes what, you know, what um, customers are sort of coming to us for uh, with their EPCS challenges. Excellent. Okay, we're going to we're going to look at the poll. I was thinking of having everyone guess at what they think the results would be, but for the sake of time, we'll we'll skip that little fun exercise. Um and I'm going to share the results. So, um I want to I want to know uh, briefly cuz I do want to get to one other thing, but I want to know briefly uh your thoughts on these results. Um so uh Dan, real quick, let me start with you. That 71% think they're going to be on track and be ready. 29% do not. Is that in line with what you expected, or is that 71% seem high or low? Um, so I would say that's probably in line with what I expected. I okay. mean, given all of the regulatory activity that's been having at a state level, keep in mind that you know if a state passes a law to require EPCS, chances are the deadline is at least a year, if not two years, out. So there's time to sort of get ready, given all these complexities, and make those changes that are necessary. So as I said, there are 27 states that now mandate EPCS, or you know those laws will go into effect in the next couple of years. Plus that federal legislation, I think, has really um, elevated the, the uh, need to put EPCS closer to the top of your priority list. Um, and so that really doesn't necessarily su surprise me at all. And you know, certainly for those 29% who disagree, um, that could be for a varying different number of reasons, right? Um, and certainly anyone who's in that bucket that wants um, to, to talk further about your specific issue, you know, we're available. Um, but that could be for uh, any number of, uh, of reasons. Yep. All right, let me get a quick reaction from Dr. Cool first and then Robin on this stunning 100% think it'll have a positive impact on patient care. That's, that's great to see. You don't see 100% on anything except sort of an election in a dictatorship. Um, so, Dr. Cool, your thoughts? Yeah, um, I, I think it's, uh, it's obvious to people why this is a big patient satisfier. Um, having the prescription sent electronically, if you are in pain, and then just going to the pharmacy and picking it up um, without having to drop it off, sit there, wait, and or come back. Uh, everybody just on face value uh, recognizes that that's a benefit. Plus, any of the controls and not having to pick up a paper prescription, um, that doesn't surprise me at all that everybody recognizes that in an electronic era, carrying around a paper prescription is a bit archaic at this point. Robin, thoughts on that 100%? I agree with uh, what Dr. Cole said. I think everybody recognizes the positive impact on patient care and is and are quick to go with the safety features of an electronic system. I would just throw one beware of unintended consequences there, and we talked about that a little bit as we navigated the conference today, the call today, that you know there are duplicates, canceled prescriptions um, when the printer fails and you handwrite it, now the patient has an electronic prescription and a paper prescription. So I think that it's easy to see the positive impact, but not take your eye off of the unintended consequences of the technology. If I might just add, what is surprising is the 71% who think they're on track to go. Again, I think it's just being aware of what your numbers are if you have e-prescribing live already and you think it's going to be a no-brainer hop over to EPCS, uh, you may be caught off guard by how many mm. paper prescriptions are still being 
uh, news out in the workforce and what you thought was going to be a non-event, just adding on controlled substances really becomes the implementation of e-prescribing because it hasn't been adopted in the ways that you think. So you have to know yourself first, I think, um, before you're really ready to be on track. So, Robin, you, you suspect that perhaps some of those 71% don't, are, are, are maybe not fully informed of what they're going to have to do. You think that number is a little high? I think in leadership we learn all the time policy says this, and then you go out to the real world and find out they don't know there is even a policy. And, <laughs> and so we, we were caught by surprise. Our pilot group, who was coming to meetings and talking about being the pilot group, were not even e-prescribing 25% of their prescriptions. So it was an enormous learning curve for the group that we thought was going to be the leader. Very good. I'm going to push this just a little bit. I just want to get, I want to give Dan an opportunity to ask each of his co-panelists a question. I love this feature. So I'm going to keep you real quick. Let's see if we can keep our answers fairly short. So Dan, go ahead. Sure. So I guess Dr. Cool, I'll ask you here. Um, uh, for audience members who are sitting there in that 29%, they disagree. They're just starting out on kind of their EPCS journey. Can you summarize, if you were in their shoes, and this was way back at the beginning, what do you wish someone who is using EPCS as, as successful as you are today, what do you wish that they maybe had told you at that point that would have made this rollout uh, much easier from your perspective? Um, I, I would want to know the things that we've highlighted that were the oopses, um, I, you know, and that's why I focused a lot on the oops uh, component of that and things that we did not uh, anticipate. Um, we underestimated the cell phone upgrade issue. Um, we, um, you know, when we were going through the regulatory issues, we did get a lot of assistance and we are an Improvada customer and we did... Um, we, we got a lot of help in understanding that that helped us to outline a process that uh, we have now hardwired, uh, and that's great. Um, I would say paying attention to those areas that we've said are the unanticipated consequences and the oops moments that we discovered after going live is what I would have liked to have known when we were doing this. Robin? And that's a great question. And if I could suggest one thing, it's to involve your PMO, your project management office, early. Mm -hmm. This is uh, not for the lighthearted. It's an enormous project, and it has a lot of moving pieces and parts if you're connecting your EHR, your state database. So if you have APRIS, for example, as we did, and in Provada, you have to align that initiative, the build that has to be done, to set up in Provada, the bill that has to be done to connect EPIC and then the enrollment uh, and payment of your physicians to your state database or to APRIUS. So you can easily get off track if you don't have somebody watching all those milestones. Excellent. Well, that's about all we had time for today. What an excellent, excellent conversation. Lots of detail in there. So I, I think it was very helpful, and I hope it was. Regarding continuing education, you can see the final slide in this deck um, help you to get your CEUs. 
Uh, you'll receive an email when the on-demand recording of this event is ready to be viewed. If you'd like to sponsor one of our upcoming events or book a custom event, you could reach out to Nancy Wilcox from our team, and you can go to our website to register for upcoming webinars. So with that, I want to thank our panel, Robin Lang, Dr. Philip Cool, and Dan Borgasano, and I very much want to thank Improvada for uh, sponsoring this conversation and making this education available. So with that, everybody have a wonderful day. Thank you.